Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Yeah. Carlos is, Carlos, like, has to eat ramen for the next month. Yeah. Now we know he's qualified to be on a car podcast. Yeah, right? dude, we love ramen because we are car boys. <laughs> we love ramen because we buy our car parts instead of vegetables. Why, why is your car car guy like Vincent D'Onofrio from <laughs> Men in Black? Water, sugar, sugar, water, more. I went and saw Men in Black with my cousin and my aunt, and my aunt was wearing the same dress as that lady in that scene. <laughs> She got roasted. That's awesome. That was my favorite movie as a kid. I mean, it's st- the first one still holds up. Hey, you so know the difference well. between me and you? Uh, about three ounces, four cars, and two. two I'll make TV this cars. look good. Uh, Welcome back to oh, the Past Gas Podcast. I'm James Pumphrey, as always, joined by Nolan Sykes. Hello. I butchered that. Uh, what's the difference reference? And Joe Weber. Hey, y'all. Okay. I got a question for you guys. Yeah. What do you think is the ultimate form of protest against the government? Um, Unleashing a global pandemic. Is it a rally? No. What about a petition? What about, instead of all those things, you got a group of your buddies together and just drove across the country super duper fast and hoped you didn't get stopped by the cops along the way. Whoa. Whoa dude. Yeah, that's probably the ultimate. <laughs> yeah, that's how you affect change. <laughs> this is exactly how the cannonball run was born. Turns out, the cannonball run was more than just Burt Reynolds chewing gum while sprinting across the country with Dom DeLuise and a band of merry men. Well, I thought it was just Burt Reynolds chewing gum with Dom DeLuise. The original cannonball run was a protest against a future that promised to destroy cars and people as we knew them in the 1970s. The gas crisis? We'll get there, James. There's a lot of, a lot of things. Fast gas podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the Past Gas Podcast. If you like Past Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out, and I really appreciate that, so thank you. All right, now for the show. By 1971, the U.S. was starting to feel the culmination of the absolute craziness of the 1960s. The space race had just peaked two years earlier with the moon landing in 1969. Nice. The battle, nice, yeah. (laughs) The battle against Soviet communism had given birth to a culture of fear and paranoia against a backdrop of constant threat of nuclear annihilation and Soviet control. Despite victory in the space race, the Vietnam War was entering its 16th year by 1971, and people were getting tired, afraid, and most of all, they were upset. The continued pointless slaughter in Vietnam helped grow a massive sense of distrust for the government by its citizens. Don't they call the Vietnam War the American War in Vietnam? I would imagine so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool, just wanted to get that out there. (laughs) 
Still, though, Richard Nixon was enjoying his time in office, wielding his presidential signature and signing the EPA into foundation. Uh, that is the Environmental Protection Agency. The creation of OSHA uh, followed soon after. They're the ones that uh, enforce workplace safety. Uh, while these organizations were very beneficial, it created an immediate fear of turning America into a, quote, nanny state. Yeah, we don't need no protection. If the environment deserves to survive, then it can protect itself, pick itself up by its freaking bootstraps. You gotta stop pouring bleach into the rivers. You gotta stop freaking uh, hurting yourself at work. What is yeah, happening? That's yeah, my, my Fran Drescher. That's my nanny <laughs> my nanny state. Fran Drescher in the nanny. Yeah, man. Babe. <laughs> babe. Real babe. Yeah. Mr. Sheffield, yeah. quit pouring the bleach into the rivers. She's a good looking woman. Anyway. <laughs> That's all the EPA does, right? They just keep you from pouring bleach yeah. in the rivers. You're making too much smog, Mr. Sheffield. Oh, Mr. <laughs> Sheffield, you got the volcanoes going all over the place. <laughs> I don't think that I don't think EPA is trying to shut down volcanoes. They're putting just giant yeah. like manhole covers over volcanoes. Yeah. Volcano is a broken mountain. They gotta protect that mountain. <laughs> okay. Anyway, the Clean Air Act of 1970. Oh, okay. <laughs> I hate air. Uh, sometimes called the Muskie Act. After As in Muskie, be a nerd. <laughs> after the senator who pushed into legislation had one of the most intense impacts on the automotive climate. The Muskie Act required automotive manufacturers to reduce vehicle emissions by at least 90% within the next five years. That's, That's crazy. A lot. That's a lot. It takes like seven to ten years to develop a car. Therein lies the rub. Uh, these new restrictions were coming at the height of the horsepower wars of the muscle car era and threatened to end muscle cars in the U.S., Entirely. At a time when 7.4 liter V8s were found in almost every performance Chevrolet, it was pretty apparent that emissions were not exactly front and center in most consumers' minds. The easiest way to comply to these regulations was to severely strangle the engines by leaning out the air-fuel mixtures or just fitting less powerful engines overall. A proposed 55 mile an hour speed limit was also in the works as well, adding insult to injury to many an automotive enthusiast. The general consensus is that the first muscle car era truly ended in approximately 1971, largely due to such tight restrictions. The Ford Mustang lineup is a perfect example of the new policy's impact. In 1971, the Mustang could be optioned with up to a 7-liter V8 that could produce 375 horsepowers. In contrast, four years later, in 1975, for those who are following along, the largest engine available in the Mustang was a 5-liter V8 that could barely put down 140 horsepowers. It's a big drop. Yeah. To put that into perspective, a 2020 Toyota Camry makes 203 horsepower with a 2.5-liter four-cylinder engine. That is about 1.45 times the power of the Mustang with an engine that is half the size. While older cars are usually outmatched in modern-day comparisons, it's still shocking when you consider that our basic passenger sedans produce more power, baby, than the performance <laughs> model of the Mustang at that time. This is a wheelhouse episode we're writing right now, and it's pretty shocking uh, just doing research and seeing like these little tiny inline threes with turbos making like twice the amount of power that a big old V8 yeah. back in the day makes. Like, I think the most shocking example is like, I know we talk about PT Cruisers a lot now. <laughs> At least 2020 is the year of the <laughs> it PT really, Cruiser. Really is. Uh, a PT Cruiser GT can beat a 1974 Countach in zero to 60. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I grew up at drag strips. Uh, you know, there's nothing, be the, there's nothing better to me than like a big block v8 just chugging along just like with a nasty cam just sounds like, like it's gonna nasty. fall apart yeah. oh my god that v8's nasty <laughs> do you hear this mike <laughs> avery no uh <laughs> but um i think it's super cool that these tiny engines nowadays are making so much power They're like sick. anybody should be excited about that like they're lighter more efficient and 
with a smaller packaging, you can do more stuff to the car itself to make it handle better. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's really cool. Yeah. But to top it all off, the book Unsafe at Any Speed was published in 1965 by a young lawyer by the name of Ralph Nader, becoming the best-selling nonfiction book in 1966 alongside Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. I haven't oh. finished that yet. <laughs> Nader's book <laughs> is famous for exposing blatant safety flaws in automotive design, specifically targeting the Chevy Corvair suspension. The swing axle suspension system, which was identical to the VW Beetle, was defective and could easily lead the drivers losing control of the car and rolling. While with this suspension, he also exposed how faulty hood hinges would break away during an accident, causing the hood to act as a projectile, potentially injuring and even decapitating the vehicle's occupants, and proved that non-collapsible steering racks caused an absurd number of fatalities during accidents, by impaling drivers. Cars used to be so unsafe Dude, back in the day. I made the mistake of watching old crash tests one day, and it's just like gory. Yeah. It's disgusting. Just like cutting dummies' heads off and just like, <laughs> like it's people really just, bad. If you got in a car accident, you'd, you'd just die. Yeah. You think about like the, the A and B, A, B, and C pillars on like classic cars, you know, mm -hmm. like on my Dart, for example, the A pillar is no joke. Like, I can put my finger around it like that, mm -hmm. and that's supposed to protect me in a crash. Like, yeah. I, I do want to retrofit it with, like, roll bars or something, uh -huh. even though it'll be, like, a cruiser, just mm -hmm. just for that piece of yeah, mind. Yeah, it's just, like, the perfect size to break off and go right through your <laughs> eye hole. Yeah. Or, yeah, everything just turns into, like, blades and spears. <laughs> yeah, it, like windows. Before they used tempered glass, like, the pane glass would just break into these giant shards <laughs> and, like, cut people's jugulars oh my and all God. that. In, like, fender benders. Not good. Not good. Uh, some might say they're unsafe at any speed. <laughs> Nader argued that there was a gap between existing design and attainable safety. He said, quote, there's a gap between existing design and attainable safety. Vote for me. And he also said that automotive manufacturers had moral imperatives to make people safer. Nader encouraged whistleblowers to speak out against the automotive industry and to help expose as many glaring faults from companies as possible. His constant political lobbying led to massive reform in automotive design, but many people viewed it as just another excuse to make their fun and sporty machines into bland boxes. Ralph Nader had people fearing for their lives around their vehicles. I think with good reason. I think he's making a good point. You know? Yeah. I think it's amazing that he was able to get like a best-selling book that's just like an expose. On that is pretty, pretty gnarly. I mean, they didn't have... I don't even know what a popular book is today. Now you can buy a bestseller, like a New York Times bestseller. All you have to do is just buy it. Well, New York Times bestseller list is not dependent on sales. Yeah, what does the what does a newspaper know about selling books? Am I right? <laughs> what the, is that your thing now? You're just the mugging camera. the camera. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's not like so. Like the number one book on the New York Times bestseller list isn't the number one selling book in the country. It's a curated list. Yeah, it's and you buy like, into it. It's like, hey, check these out. Hmm. Yeah. And then they'll probably actually become bestsellers by being on that list. Probably, yeah. It's good it's investment. Like the, it's like the YouTube trending page. We're going to tear this whole system down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All these events going on at this time culminated in one thing. Rebellion. <laughs> like Star Wars. <laughs> in 1971. <laughs> Rebellion is what helped define who you were. The man was out to get you, and yeah. you and everyone you knew had to show them who was boss. Let's show the man that I'm, let's show my boss that I'm the boss. <laughs> hey, boss, f you, I'm the boss. <laughs> uh, there were protests for Vietnam everywhere, draft cards were being burned, and people were setting themselves on fire even. ROTC buildings were being bombed. The civil rights movement had only just ended in the late 60s after almost 20 years. And gay rights protests were sprouting up, starting with the infamous uh, 1960 protests at the Stonewall Inn in New York City. 1969. Uh, 1969, sorry. Nice. Uh, this was all part of one major movement in America, appropriately named the protest movement. Yeah, it was a time, you know, very tumultuous time. People yeah. Standing I, wonder what, for the, I wonder what that was like. Yeah, people standing Living up for in their a tumultuous rights. time. Yeah. yeah, I wish. I I don't wish I knew. I can't imagine what living in a <laughs> terrifying time would be. 
we millennials have it pretty good right now. Yeah, yeah we've never heard. We do have safe cars. We do have yeah. safe cars, but we should stay in them because the air is poison and there's no health care anywhere. All right. When it came to fighting automotive restrictions specifically, even Hollywood got involved, helping implant an idea into the nation. The urge to hit the road without consequence. The 1969 hit Easy Rider starring Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper. This is Jack Nicholson's first movie role. Hmm. And he was amazing in that movie. Have you ever tried I've to ne- do I've it? never seen it actually. It's great. Have you ever tried to do good. his okay. eyebrows? Hey, hey, that guy's one easy rider. <laughs> That's his point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> easy rider proved that there was more to just driving around than just the destinations. All about the journey and the freedom to decide how and when you get there, you know? Yeah, just, man. Just cr- you ever just get in your car and just drive somewhere? <laughs> Yeah, only when I'm life. sticking it to the man, though. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm like, you know what? Screw the man. I'm going to drive all the way to Orange County today. I actually do want to go out to Palm Palm Springs or something. Brock Yates was the senior editor of Car and Driver magazine during this time. One day, while sitting and fuming over the new restrictions. Just sweating. Just like, yeah, airbags, <laughs> seatbelts. He was fuming over the new restrictions being imposed on automobiles, specifically the speed restrictions. He remembered a conversation he had years earlier. His fellow staffer, Steve Smith, had always claimed that the best way to truly test a road car was at high speeds. Sounds pretty reasonable. With speed regulations cracking down even further, it looked like that dream would become even less obtainable. So, in order to fall in line with the rest of the protest movement, they decided... The best way to protest the new laws was to break it. Hell yeah. They would organize a group of people to use the new interstate system and race from coast to coast to see who would complete it in the best time. People love street racing. Last night I tweeted, I made two tweets. One of them was, hey, let's remember all the healthcare workers out there. Like, get big shouts, big respect. Big shout out to nurses. Yeah, for sure. That's crazy. I can't imagine that. The other one was, hey, seems like a good time for street racing. Yeah. The street racing tweet got exponentially more retweets <laughs> and more likes. Uh, now. So, America, at least our audience, prefers street racing to nurses. Now, this wasn't the first time this idea had been tried. In fact, some other journalists at the time had claimed to set a coast-to-coast record. But those numbers usually stretch the truth a bit. Oh, no. Some people had only gone a short distance and then used that as an oh average God. for how long the rest of the run would take. <laughs> that's, that's, not, whack. that's not how that works. <laughs> no, 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 yeah. no. Others, yeah, <laughs> no. Others had completed it but didn't count the time they spent at their hotels against their total time. Uh, again. Doesn't count. Basically, previous recent records were useless and fake. But there was one person whose numbers could be trusted. Erwin Cannonball Baker Hell yeah. was an American motorcycle and car racer right at the turn of the century. Originally, he was a vaudeville performer, uh, you know, doing weird sketches and singing songs. Yeah. Cannonball, my <laughs> cannonball. <laughs> hey, look at this little guy in a barrel. <laughs> <laughs> I got me a little guy and a dog that sings for donuts. <laughs> Anyway, uh, he he turned to racing after winning a dirt track motorcycle race in 1904 at the age of 22. Damn, that's not bad. Baker was a good racer, but what he was most famous for were his timed continental speed runs. In 1915, he raced from New York to Los Angeles in a Stutz Bearcat in a total of 11 days and 7 hours. That's a cool car name. Stutz Bearcat. It's pretty amazing. In 1928... He raced the New York Central 20th Century Limited Elite Train Line from New York to Chicago and won. His speed runs uh, made Cannonball a legend. He would run literally everything from motorcycles to tanks even. People would pay him to try and complete a record in his vehicle as he held the mantra, no record, no pay. Throughout his career that spanned until his death in 1960, he set 143 total distance records. His greatest drive of all was in 1933. Baker drove his Graham Page Model 57 Blue Streak 8 solo, coast to coast, in 53 hours and 30 minutes. He completed a solo run faster than most people could do with the team today. It was especially impressive because there was no interstate system in 1933, 
and there weren't that many paved roads either. Uh, that is very impressive. It took us 25 hours to drive to Albuquerque with three vehicles. So this guy definitely has us beat. He didn't. He didn't have a turbo on his car. That was just a no. time bomb. No, he didn't. With Baker as his inspiration in the 1971 releases of Tulane Blacktop and Vanishing Point pushing them over the edge, Brock Yates and Steve Smith decided to create the Cannonball Baker Sea to Shining Sea Memorial Trophy Dash. Woo! Trophy Easy Dash. Easy to remember name. Yeah, it's super. It's As long as you're under nine words <laughs> mm-hmm. it's really easy <laughs> yeah that's the rule for the human brain uh that also would look really sick on the back of a t-shirt they really would trophy dashes were typically short races of about five laps so that part of the name was selected sort of as a joke <laughs> 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 the, wink, ra- wink. <laughs> the race would be a quote balls out shoot the moon f- the establishment rumble from New York to Los Angeles to prove what we have been harping about for years. That good drivers and good automobiles could employ the American interstate system in the same way the Germans were using their autobonds. Truth and justice affirmed by an overtly illegal act. And we have a little guy in a barrel. <laughs> this is kind of what that last part came from. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this people are still kind of talking about this. Like, I saw an article a couple weeks ago, kind of arguing that people that the I five in California should kind of be like an autobahn, you know? Yeah. Because like, I mean, people speed on that thing already. Like, we got to Bakersfield in like an hour and a half because we were going like ninety five the whole way, mm-hmm. which is pretty awesome. Uh, gotta get to Bakersfield. <laughs> yeah. Gotta get to gotta the get out there, man. Togos before they close. <laughs> uh, Bakersfield's got the best Togos. I don't know. As we'll see, maybe maybe that's not a great idea. Well, California re- people just speed. Yeah, yeah. unless <laughs> it's raining. Unless it's raining, then we go four. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It was decided that May 3rd, 1971 would be the grand introduction of the first event. The race was introduced for fun as much as it was a protest uh, against the government treating drivers like they were incapable of driving in their best interest. It was announced in Yates' monthly article in Car and Driver magazine. Yates and Smith assumed that as soon as the race was announced, entrance would start flooding through the door. After all, What self-respecting driver would pass up on the chance to do something as crazy as this? Well, turned out, pretty much all of them. 
the exact opposite of what they wanted happened. Basically, no one applied, and those who did uh, pulled out soon after. It's like we have actual racetracks yeah. <laughs> that we're racing on. Like we don't, we don't have to leave Southern California. The reality was, when it came down to it, people feared penalty. People feared any punishment from employers, sponsors, or even family members. There really wasn't all that much reward for competing, so why risk it? In the end, Yates's team was comprised of Jim Williams, an artist and future car and driver staffer, whom uh, Yates had met at an art show, and Yates's 14-year-old son, Brock Yates Jr. Uh, they Are you guys put- going to name your sons your name? Man, no. 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 I want to name my son Evil. Evil? With yeah, an yeah, I? That, E-V-E-L. I'd probably probably give. I want to name my son Evil Dave Pumphrey. <laughs> if, I, if I have a if I have a <laughs> so people just always assume that it's a nickname Evil yeah. Dave. And hey, there's Evil Dave. Yeah, <laughs> Evil Dave Pumphrey, not David. Dave. That's so sick. <laughs> um, I might do if I have a son. I've thought about this. Either Thomas James Sykes. Oh, Nolan. Uh, Maybe daughter. I'll name my son Evil Nolan. <laughs> doesn't quite roll off the tongue. Uh. Daughter, um, we know someone who named their daughter Senna, which That's I thought, a cool which is really cool. Yeah, yeah. kind of like that. Uh, I'll name my daughter Bullet. Bullet. Ooh. Yeah. That's a good one. Like Bullet, B U L L I T. Yeah, like the t- county in Kentucky. Bullet County. Bullet. Cool. I'm going to name her Bullet County Pumper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next important step was to figure out what kind of car to drive. Almost immediately, Yates was offered the use of a Ferrari Daytona from a dude named Kirk White, a Ferrari dealer. You can't, you can't be a Ferrari dealer and not have that. Like that's that's a Ferrari dealer <laughs> yeah. name. Kirk White Ferrari. Yeah. Hell yeah. I Only- just assume him to look like uh, Will Ferrell and he's found it now with like yeah. Ric Flair here. Run him down, Kirk. Kirk White Exotic Motors. Yeah. I'm yeah. from New York, but I talk like this. <laughs> and although he initially accepted it, he eventually turned down the offer after he determined that he was more interested in having a fun and crazy adventure than he was with getting a record. So he he's had, just like, ta- like he's just taking a vacation now. Yeah. Basically. It's like, okay, this is the story of some guys who took a road trip with yeah. his son. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I get it because like he's riding for Car and Driver. He's probably got it cleared, but he's like, if I'm the only one doing this, the record's not gonna. It's not gonna mean as much. I'm, I, it's better to get a story out of this. Yeah. Thing. yeah. So he hit up Chrysler's Dodge division PR expert BF Moon Mullins. Hell yeah, of course, really Moon, uh, who is also a friend of Car and Driver magazine. Yates got access to the Car and Driver's Boss Van Three, a Hell 1971 yeah. Dodge Custom Sports Van that had been lightly modified by the magazine with a 225 hertz per 360 cubic inch V8. The van was lovingly named Moon Trash 2 <laughs> after their connection with Dodge, presumably because Dodge PR is amazing. Dodge yeah. is the we've worked with a lot of car companies. Dodge is by far still like this. Uh yeah. Dodge paid us ten thousand dollars for me to get a tattoo on my chest. I'm so glad that they've just kept the tradition alive. Yeah. Uh, uh, Yates and his team took off at midnight. Woo! Of course. That's the witching hour on May 3rd, 1971 from the Red Ball Garage in New York City, destined for the Portofino Inn in Redondo Beach. Redondo. California. What's up, Dondo? <laughs> hey. <laughs> Where are my Dondo heads? Now, since his 14-year-old son was too young to drive, he was put on police lookout duty, manning the handheld radar detector. The detector was one of only a few in existence as police officers had only recently adopted the use of radar guns for traffic management. Very interesting. Now, the entire run was spectacularly uneventful. Yates finished in 40 hours and 51 minutes, which is really impressive. That is pretty pretty rad. With an average speed of 70 miles per hour. About halfway through the race, a rattle in the front right wheel forced the team to slow their pace down to a maximum of 80 miles per. The van averaged 9.7 miles per gallon <laughs> oh my God. and used 314.5 gallons of fuel for the entire 2,858-mile run the biggest takeaway from this trip was that the 20 gallon gas tank had too low of a range and caused too many long fuel stops you ever go on a long road trip and get tunnel vision in the middle of the night it's kind of scary it's super scary like all of a sudden you 
just become super aware of how fast you're going and like you're in a metal box and yeah. you're responsible for like all these people's lives. Yeah, everyone's sleeping. Yeah. Your freaking that, navigator is yeah. sleeping. Mm-hmm. That's the one rule. Like your navigator's got to stay up with you, keep you awake. That definitely happened on our trip to New Mexico because like Aaron and I were switching off mm-hmm. and uh, there's a point I was like maybe five in the morning, but I had stayed up like all night mm-hmm. and we're just driving and I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> uh, shortly after the event, Yates published his result in Car and Driver. There's no way to predict the public's reaction. After all, this uh, broke multiple laws and appeared to be pretty reckless. Car and Driver was actually very reluctant to run the story, adding in a disclaimer at the end to ensure that they distanced themselves as far from Yates's cannonball as possible. But as soon as the story was published, Letters began flowing in because they didn't have the internet. Yeah. Uh, there was a surprisingly <laughs> high number of people who were actually in uh, very high support of Yates' actions. We love going fast. <laughs> oh, hell, Yates. Oh, Yates is sticking it to a government. <laughs> I can't drive 55. <laughs> there were a, a lot of angry letters, but a majority of them seemed to be on Yates' side. The general consensus of oh, Dear you, I'm a stuck-up little fuddy-duddy nerd. <laughs> I'm scared to go to the fast. <laughs> Suck it. Why can't you just race trains and have a man in a barrel? <laughs> I am a school principal, and I find this absurd. Why can't we just have a little guy in a barrel? If you're bored, the... <laughs> <laughs> the, the general consensus was that people should be allowed to drive at whatever speeds they felt comfortable, as long as it does not directly risk the lives of others. In his article, Yates wrote, quote, From here on in, I'm going to use the road according to my own skills and capabilities. And not in conformity with a 49-year-old cradle-to-grave squarehead bureaucrat who wouldn't know a good automobile if it ran him over. That sounds like Gary Glitter. (laughs) We'd like to thank Tenacious D for coming in. (laughs) That's what I assume Yates. I, I, I keep Yeah, I love it. He's a freaking cool-ass dude. (laughs) One of the most interesting responses to the article came in the form of a telegram from the Polish Racing Drivers of America, or the PRDA. They (laughs) challenged Yates in the next official run. While it was somewhat of a tongue-in-cheek response from a very tongue-in-cheek organization, they were serious about running the race. Now, there was some competition. Yates Supposed he had to host another event. Uh, the Polish racing drivers of America didn't really take anything with complete seriousness. God, they're such goofballs. I the know. PRDA. <laughs> but they were rumored to be building a Chevy van with enough auxiliary tanks to make the whole trip nonstop. Damn. When that was going to be some serious competition. And a serious fire hazard. <laughs> yeah, so just a big... Van full of gas. Um, that was going to be some serious competition. So Yates had to assemble a dream team with the perfect vehicle in order to stand a chance. Initially, he was plagued with the same issues as before when it came to finding a partner. Relatable. Literally everyone was afraid of the risk. He asked basically everyone he knew, even racing legend Phil Hill. <laughs> racing, I'm sorry, what? La- <laughs> racing, uh, the legendary Phil Hill. <laughs> Okay. Is a true legend in the <laughs> game. He asked basically everyone he knew, even racing legend Phil Hill, to drive with him. To which he got the response, um, "What about cops?" <laughs> and Yates was like, "Screw you, nerd." <laughs> <laughs> Yates said that the race was less risky than actual racing because in actual racing, you're always at risk of dying in a violent 200-mile-per-hour crash. That's a good point. I suppose we've been so preconditioned that it's a reflex action. Good God, I'm terrified about losing my driver's license. How screwed up can our priorities get? That was Phil Hill. He Basically, he was out. So after weeks of searching, Yates was able to secure a partnership with Dan Gurney. Hell yeah, we love Dan Gurney. Hell yeah, a, quote, retired racer who was famous for being the first of three drivers ever to have won a race in sports cars, Formula One, NASCAR, and Indy. This guy did it all. To top it all off, Gurney contributed to racing in one very specific way. 
one very special way, gentlemen. Have you ever wondered why people spray champagne on everyone after winning a race? Yes, I have. Well, Dan Gurney started that. After he and his teammate, A.J. Foyt, won the 24 Hours of Le Mans in 1967, he spontaneously placed a finger over the opening of the champagne bottle and began spraying everyone. (laughs) Uh, And that kind of, that's been a tradition ever since he wanted the champagne to come out faster because he's a speed freak (laughs) there's only one way to do that gravity ain't fast enough for this pain (laughs) (laughs) he's a pretty cool dude he's uh, a gurney flap it's named after dan gurney sure is little piece of metal there that helps build up some pressure on the back of the wing which uh helps the uh air pressure and uh, create some downforce yep and they also named like hospital gurneys after him because he carried his team yeah, and it's wow. a and it's a faster bed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Along with Gurney, Yates also secured a Ferrari three six five GTB four Daytona wow. from his old buddy Kirk White. At the time, the Ferrari Daytona was the fastest streetcar in the world. It had a max speed of 175 miles per, which was significantly higher than that of Moon Trash Two, which topped out at 105. The sizable fuel tank of the GT car also allowed for 300 to 350 miles of range per tank, which only meant he would have to stop to refuel about eight times. Very cool. Eight teams entered the next cannonball, and they all prepared to start off on the evening of November 15th, 1971. The initial meeting point was Steve Smith's one-bedroom New York apartment at 10.30, an hour and a half before the start at the Red Ball Garage. The teams gathered with their eclectic collection of cars. The PRDA showed up in a brightly painted Chevy van, completely covered in sponsor logos. Come on, guys. We're trying to not attract (laughs) attention. Uh, With enough tanks in the rear to hold approximately 300 gallons of fuel. Jeez. On the side, in big letters read, quote, PRDA goes coast to coast nonstop. Guys, we sent you a letter. We said, (laughs) don't make your car say... (laughs) Anything about the race. Uh, Moon Trash 2 was also present, uh, this time being driven by a different team and painted flat black this time around. Yeah. They got the memo. (laughs) At some point in the night, two brothers staggered in, unshaved and exhausted, apparently having spent the last 44 hours doing a nonstop run from L.A. to New York, bringing with them a clapped-out AMX. Uh, they walked in, announced they would be sleeping for the next hour or eight hours before they departed, and then left. <laughs> what? What? Yeah. I, did, these nut jobs. Did they just like get it reversed and they're like, oh, we messed up? Or is it just like they were like trying to flex on them? I have no idea. I want to know more about these unshaven <laughs> guys. <laughs> yeah, does that mean like their chest? <laughs> okay. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> One surprising car to see was a brand new 1971 Cadillac Sedan DeVille. Apparently, the team of three people had found this car in the back of the New York Times classifieds as a drive-away deal. A drive-away deal used to be way more common than it is now, but essentially a person would pay someone to drive their car from point A to point B for them. It would pretty much allow you to have someone transport your car for a much lower price, or it was a good way to get paid to travel. Apparently, the person who was paying for the Cadillac had no idea <laughs> that it was being used for this challenge. That's messed up. I could see how that'd be a problem. Like you buy like one a new like one of the new Black Wings that's coming out mm-hmm. later, uh, and then just two dudes just <laughs> thrash it for yeah. three thousand miles. We'll deliver it. Now, of course, Yates and Gurney had their Daytona, but it was surely no match for the sheer speed of the Dodge Travco Motorhome. Oh, yeah. A 26-foot RV that's fuel economy could only be calculated in smiles per gallon. Shout out David Peterson, (laughs) a.k.a. that dude in blue. What's up, dude? As the other way was just far too painful. As always, the rules were simple. The winner would be the person with the fastest documented time between the Red Ball Garage exit card and the registration desk punch-in at the Portofino Inn. You could use any car you wanted with any size team you wanted, as long as they were both present the entire time from start to finish. So, same team had to do, like, you couldn't just switch off. Yeah, you couldn't drop the car off and have another team complete it. It's not a relay race. No. Good Thank you. Remember relay races? Like I do. You guys ever have uh, like track and field day in elementary yes. school? 
I liked relays because I can only run fast for a very short yeah. period of time. <laughs> Same here, man. Sprinter. Yeah. Uh, other than those rules, though, the only rule was <laughs> there are no rules. The, the only rules are the rules, but other than the rules, there are no rules. <laughs> well, that that is a rule. Yeah. You're, you're, well, no, there's the rules, but other than all the rules, there are no rules. That's the only rule. Right, but you can see how that's contradictory. Yeah, you know, there's like eight rules, but beyond those rules, the only rule is there are no rules. <laughs> As the clock struck midnight, the first team exited the Red Ball garage and began the race. The first team to always leave first was the Polish Racing Division uh, of America, as they were always guaranteed their rightful claim of the uh. <laughs> pole position. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. They are some of the biggest goofballs in racing. It seems yeah. like. The PRDA. Yeah. yeah. These guys don't take anything. <laughs> Yates and Gurney set off soon after. Unsurprisingly, the Daytona was amazing. Yeah, it's a Ferrari. Yeah, oh, it turns out this Ferrari rules. Almost to the point of being boring. Oh. At 100 miles per, the car was perfectly controllable and stable. Great the car. Daytona was a beautiful blue color Ooh. with gold pinstriping Ooh. and sponsorship logos and driver's Ooh, names yeah. on the fenders. Oh. The only issue they ran into was the windshield wipers refusing to work when it started to rain. That's the tie-in, baby. <laughs> Other than that small snag, they were averaging 81 miles per by Columbus, Ohio. 81 miles to Columbus, Ohio. Yep. I love that song. Yep. Of course, the windshield wipers were nothing compared to the absolute tragedy that had taken place on the motorhome. When exiting New York City, the Travco motorhome took a very sharp turn to avoid an obstacle in the road, spilling an entire plate of lasagna <laughs> off no! the stovetop oh all over the camper floor. No! But luckily... There was a Garfield on board. He <laughs> ate it all up. Garfield says, I have no self-respect. I'll eat off the ground. Uh, John, John, get my magazines. <laughs> what? It's a Garfield. He sits on magazines? John, No, he reads them. John, <laughs> get my magazines. <laughs> Odie, don't touch my magazines. <laughs> God. Garfield. There's three things we know about Garfield. Uh -huh. He hates Mondays. Yep. He loves lasagna. <laughs> He reads a lot of magazines. <laughs> he subscribes to so many. Yates is quoted as saying, Garfield makes a great passenger, but racing drivers make bad passengers that generally trust no one but themselves, and some refuse to ride with anyone at all. But luckily for Yates, after an hour of watching him like a hawk, Gurney finally relaxed enough to comfortably let his buddy drive. Gurney drove the first 14 hours and 35 minutes of the trip with an average speed of 83.5 miles per. Obviously, Gurney was up to the task of driving for a long time because um, he's a famous endurance car driver. But it was still surprising for him to drive at such high speeds on the highway for that long. As the day dragged on, the weather got worse and worse. As soon as they arrived in the high country of eastern Arizona near uh, Flagstaff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Ferrari was nearly uncontrollable in the snowy and slick weather because the tires had been overinflated to 40 PSI for better fuel economy. Makes sense. Yeah. While he was certain the nearest competitors were states away due to the Ferrari's incredible pace, Yates was shocked to be passed by anyone, let alone an enormous Cadillac. That's what happens when you let Yates drive. This gurney's like, Come, uh, I guess I'll let you because it's going to be awkward if I don't let you. And then... <laughs> Frickin' uh, Snoop DeVille passes him. But the Cadillac had started 20 minutes earlier, which meant that they were still behind on time. Passing someone on a run was basically begging for a race. They chased the Caddy for nearly 100 miles before finally passing them. That thing's fat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but it was tough. The team driving the Cadillac was driving it like they had stolen it. They kind of did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they really did. <laughs> Going over 100 miles an hour in a car with cloud-like suspension and steering input that was more of a suggestion. Yeah, suggestion. I learned how to drive in a 1985 Mercury Grand Marquis. Yeah. Which is like a 27 foot long car. <laughs> <laughs> and it does, it feels like a boat and it's so fun. And it's just like, like the th steering wheel is really thin too. So it's just like. I love a good skinny yeah. steering My wheel. My dad used to have a Saab 900 convertible. Ooh. And uh, I would refuse to put the top up in the winter and I would just bundle up <laughs> and pretend I was driving a boat. 
Nah, it's quite nice in the summer. <laughs> like a tugboat. That's Is that how your dad sounded? <laughs> no, that's my tugboat captain oh. voice. Ah, oh, no, it's cold now, but you shall come back uh, come June. It's quite nice <laughs> here in the summer. Ah, the cranberries will be done by then. <laughs> yeah, the cranberries will be done. We'll get some lobster fest. You should come back for lobster fest. <laughs> Don't go down that road. That's where the psychos live. I've always wanted to go to Kentucky for Lobster Fest. <laughs> yeah, man, Kentucky Lobster Fest. <laughs> it's like New Orleans for Mardi Gras. Go to Run with the Bulls in Pamplona. And then Lobster Fest in Kentucky, <laughs> baby. What is happening? <laughs> That's Kentucky, man. So Kentucky's like... What is a Kentucky accent, though? It's kind of like this. <laughs> I refuse to believe that. Oh, you better watch out. The dump trucks are bad this year. <laughs> what does that mean? What is that, sir? What does that mean? Just keep your head on a swivel. We got the psychopaths on that road. That? And then all the dump trucks are real bad this year. <laughs> what, but uh, but with the, about the dump trucks, what does that mean, though? Are they, are they going to... They'll take your head clean <laughs> off. We'll get back to more past guests. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Yates did have one advantage that the Cadillac didn't. A freaking shortcut. <gasps> yeah. Traditionally, racers would take the congested Route 66 and I-40 network, but Yates and Gurney would be taking a 15-mile stretch of road through Prescott National Forest to find a straighter line. The route was filled with sharp turns and 1,000-foot drop-offs on turns without guardrails. But that was a risk they were willing to take to secure the victory. Oh, yeah. Get the dub. Both teams at this point were cruising at about 125 miles per when they hit an iced-up bridge and both almost completely ate it. After being traumatized by their near-death experiences, both teams finally slowed down. As soon as they got through the shortcut, they opened it up to 140, oh, yeah. which was also the only time in the entire run that they got a speeding ticket. Huh. A few minutes later, after the police officer asked them, how fast does this thing really go? They were destined to find out. They maxed out the Daytona at 172. Dang. Through all of their reports after the race, they maintained that the cop car chasing them down was more dangerous than anything they had been doing the entire <laughs> ride over. They could have just outrun the cop. Yeah. You can't outrun a radio. When I was watching the, like the Gumball 3000 when I was in high school, uh, like a Lamborghini driver was, he had a radio, cop radio in his car. Mm-hmm. And the estimated, he was like, the cruiser was like calling it in. He was like, yeah, this Lamborghini just passed me up. Like, I assume that they're at this mile marker. And they were like eight miles past oh it. God. So they were outrunning the radio. Wow. Is this, does this have anything to do with the Gumball 3000 or no? No. Okay. It's probably inspired. Well, it's called Cannonball and then Gumball is like even goofier. Too. I think we'll probably get into that in the <laughs> next episode. 35 hours. And 54 minutes had elapsed when the hotel clerk punched their ticket. A new record by a long shot. They were certain that a myriad of delays had led to nothing but failure. But surprisingly, there were no other competitors in sight when they arrived. While waiting at the finish line, Gurney said, You know, the best thing about this whole deal is the fact that we came the entire bleeding distance without bothering anybody. Nobody else even knew we were on the road. As long as you can do something without endangering anybody or inconveniencing them, how can you say something like Cannonball Baker is wrong? I doubt that they didn't inconvenience anyone. Yeah, I bet they inconvenienced some people. That cop. 
Yeah. Well, he was pretty psyched, though. The PRDA came in second with a time of 36 hours and 47 minutes, having had to stop for a single seven-minute fuel stop. Nice. How can you fill 300 gallons of fuel in seven minutes? I have no idea. Apparently, maneuver- apparently maneuvering the extra 1,800 pounds of gasoline was difficult as they almost rear-ended a New York City transit bus within 15 minutes of starting. It was obvious that there was no clear solution to being the fastest. The size of your car had little impact on the results as it was the modifications and limitations of those modifications that really equalized the playing fields. Bars. Of all the cars that competed in the 1971 November race, the Travco Motorhome definitely stuck out like a sore thumb. The team stated that the thought process behind the car was, quote, Is it practical? No. Is it profitable? No. Is it convenient? No. Will everyone think we're crazy? Yeah, so let's do it. The Dodge Travco Motorhome was a crazy idea. The vehicle was provided by a, quote, ex, certain ex-president of a certain giant auto manufacturer. Uh, they filled the 27-foot RV with journalists and racers alike with the sole intent of breaking up the intercontinental crossing record in a motorhome. And this is where we spilled the lasagna. <laughs> and this is where Garfield sleeps. <laughs> hey, get off my magazines! <laughs> the crew included a Union 76 gas rep, a sports writer from the Chicago Today newspaper, a motorsport photographer, a NASCAR driver, and journalist unsurprisingly the motorhome scored the highest time uh showing up to the finish line almost 20 hours later than the previous contestant uh with an average speed of 50.8 miles per hour the team got a final time of 57 hours and 25 minutes still not bad yeah that's like the same as uh the barrel dude (laughs) yeah uh that was a fast enough time for the team to meet the incredibly niche record of fastest continental crossing in a motorhome, and they were officially recognized in the Guinness Book of World Records. Hmm. The March 1972 issue of Car and Driver magazine had a cover blurb, Coast to Coasting in 36 Hours, along with a two-page spread inside with the results. And the entire thing freaking blew up. Media outlets were covering the story in the phones. They was ringing nonstop. Gurney was surprised that after all the things he had won, you know, like Le Mans, Spa, and Indy, and all the champagne he had sprayed, it was the cannonball run that he became most famous for. Now, it was clear that another cannonball would be held after that, as audiences loved the outlaw nature of the entire thing, though there was once again a pretty obvious divide on the morality of the event. In a, quote, nation of spectators, Yates was certain his actions would lead to change. Yates firmly believed in a quote from Louis Brandeis, an associate justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, who once said, if we desire respect for the law, we must first make the law respectable. By driving an RV across the country. (laughs) This is a lot of mental gymnastics to just drive really fast across the country. It's Like, like, dude. Like, we get it. You want to have a fun weekend with your buds. I don't think it's, I mean, that's a component of it. But I think, I mean, I think Yates did believe that this was going to, I mean, I mean, it it got, it got a bunch of press. I mean, it drew, drew attention to the whole thing. Uh, It just happens that it was an RV, a Ferrari and a a van. Yeah, it just happens that it's like a bunch of dudes from New York in journalism who like did a fun thing that's why people liked it no one was like oh you know maybe we shouldn't just be able to drive 55 like i don't think it inspired anybody to be like yeah it turns out it is safe maybe not but i think i think people were like i want to do that i know but i i do believe that brock yates believed in what he was doing oh yeah 100 percent. he believed that he was going to change the world but i wasn't i don't think i don't think it was just like a I don't think it was an insincere guise for him just to like right do totally. To I'm do just it. saying there's like this but, um, grand grandiose vision. Yeah, no, yeah. I I understand that, but it's like I think we should not just sh- sh- on him. We're not. I'm We're not, just saying yeah. like this is like kind of an entitled dude that like yeah. thinks he can do whatever he want because he wants to drive faster and he wants the speed limits to be higher, mm-hmm. which is like not the most pressing issue at the time. <laughs> right, yeah, There's yeah, like yeah. people getting sh- hit with fire hoses and shit. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's not, this isn't the same as the civil rights movement. No, no. Is what I'm, I'm saying. Yeah, I get it. That being said, <laughs> a lot of people didn't see the entire purpose of the event. 
A group of people driving across the country as fast as possible wasn't going to get the government's attention. It was only a recipe for people to get hurt. A few of the letters car and driver received expressed that exact sentiment. Quote, what will happen when every virile male thinks they're in the top 10% of drivers? Uh, that's every male, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not everyone will be able to differentiate between Gurney and his Ferrari and Joe Blow and his GTO. Damn, hey, shots man. fired. Joes get a lot of flack. Yeah. Average Joe, Joe <laughs> Blow. That I think that quote really nails it because, like, dude, I have to humble myself probably every other week. Mm. Like, like last night at our karting event, I, I got my ass kicked. wasn't even in the top 15 of drivers uh, at Donut. Uh, I was like, okay, yeah, I'm not. I'm not that good. I'm not. I'm, I'm constantly surprised by how good of a driver I am. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think I have a lot of confidence in my driving, but then we go to tracks and stuff, and I'm, yeah. pretty, I'm yeah, you're pretty learning. fast. You're learning. According to Yates, seeking justification for driving what was the greatest passenger car in the world at the time at 100 miles per hour was elitism at its worst. No, it's not. The fact that we as a society built the cars to the lowest common denominator in order to adhere to the safety crusade was abhorrent. In his eyes, all men should strive to be as skilled of a driver as Gurney. There was no equality in skills, only in our rights. It was our lack of ambition that allowed the government to impose so many restrictions on automobiles in the country. And in his eyes, he was standing up to take back the rights that were rightfully his. As a affluent white guy. <laughs> Brock Yates dreamed of a society that allows drivers to drive based on skill. A set of laws that rewards experience and punishes blunders. Honestly, reading his thoughts on the matters, it gives off some very strong <laughs> Unabomber manifesto vibes. Throughout his I don't life, know if that's fair. <laughs> throughout his life, he was very invested in the idea that we should allow people to drive as fast as they want as long as they know the punishment. To an extent, that's the general idea that allows the German Autobahn to thrive. A set of loose regulations surround people who drive safely at a speed based on their experience and comfort level. Still, though, driving across the country as fast as possible isn't exactly the most effective way to prove that. Also, getting a driver's license in Europe is way harder than it is over here. Way in the harder. I So he wants more rules and less rules at the same time. Yeah. How so? He wants, like, looser... <laughs> restrictions for people that have more experience but then people that are not as great of drivers like they have to drive slower i mean i think he's subscribing to like a a belief that like people will know their comfort level and thus drive at that skill level which is just not true i mean but he also like harped on bureaucracy and that's like the biggest like yeah disconnect in my mind is like he he wants more bureaucracy when he actually like hates it right as always more people love the idea than hated it letters poured in asking for the date of the next race the voices of those who disapproved would never be able to outweigh the voices of those who were completely in love with it laws were still being drafted and proposed that would hinder yates's vision of an automotive utopia so despite the fame the event didn't have the impact he wanted that left him only one option to host Another cannonball run. Another one! <laughs> Get your vans ready, baby. <laughs> and that's where we'll pick up next week on Past Gas. Uh, I want to thank you guys very much for listening. It means a lot to me that you guys uh, show so much support for the show. Uh, we're always trying to improve it, especially now, because uh, I really love doing this, and it's very fun to do. Check us out on YouTube. You can also watch the show. You can see our faces. Also, you know, uh, listen to the show on uh, Spotify or anywhere else you get your podcast. Uh, follow us on social media. Follow James at James Pumphrey on both Twitter and Instagram. Follow Nolan at Nolan J. Sykes and Joe at dark underscore webinar thank you and follow the donut on donut media across all social channels yeah thank you thank you so much for uh, listening be kind bye guys i love you angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well i absolutely love this because you know if you own a home it can be really hard to maintain it's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small well Whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, 
All you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.